Hi everyone, this is episode 8 of season 4 and today I have Matt Ram back with me. Hi Matt. Good morning Catherine, how are you keeping? I'm very good thank you, how are you? Yes, not too bad, not too bad at all. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm doing a lot of preparation uh, in between talking to you of course around a, a, a long three-day full-on fishing trip next week. Nice. I'm going back to my home uh, county of Gloucestershire uh, with a, a, a good friend of mine um, who's uh, who's a bit of a professional yeah. uh, at his fishing, and uh, so much so much looking forward to that. Thank you very much. Very very nice. Well, I really really hope that you enjoy that. I've currently at the moment. I was going to say my uh, in terms of our getting away and different things like that. Alan has gone to London for the first time um, since March of 2020 today. So I have the joy of him having obviously this lovely night out, um, obviously maybe having a couple of glasses of wine or or something. And I have all three children and fudge. So... Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh dear me. I'm a, expect you, to be allowed to lie in on Saturday morning. I should think so too. I should think so too. Definitely. So today, everybody, we are going to be talking about lupus and how that comes into play with insurance applications. So this is the Practical Protection Podcast. So as we usually do, just a little bit of a, a general background for everybody in terms of lupus. There's a number of different things um, in terms of the kind of diagnosis that you might hear. So we have um, systemic lupus arithmetis. I'm going to have to help me with that one, Matt. That's absolutely right. Arithmetosis. Arithmetosis is what Arithmetosis, I call it. thank yeah, you. We know, we know, yeah. You know what I mean? Um, and somebody might say to you, SLE, so that is, um, I want to say, I've completely forgotten my phonetics then, so sugar, lima, echo. Um, I think it's sugar, is it sugar? I want to say I Sierra. I can't remember, you know, I can't remember. I, but we know Sierra, what you mean. Know yes, everybody knows <laughs> what I mean. I'll just make a random ones. Um, you then also have discoid lupus, which would be DLE, so Delta Lima Echo, and then drug-induced lupus, which is known as DILE, so Delta Indigo Lima Echo. And lupus is an autoimmune condition, and it is something where women are nine times more likely to be diagnosed with it. It can be hereditary, but it can also be something that is triggered by a certain event, such as puberty, um, being pregnant, the menopause, even a viral infection. There are some medications and potentially even sunlight might trigger it. Um, lupus is actually caused by there being too many antibodies in the system, in the immune system. So basically it means that there's too much going on there and it can lead to what's known as inflammatory events. And um, it's one of those things where I think people probably, again, as, as with any of these things that we talk about in this podcast, people think it's probably not many people, but actually when you look at the numbers, it can be quite a lot. So in terms of the estimates, there's roughly about 50,000 people in the UK that are living with lupus and that's roughly one in every thousand people. So I think a, a good way to start off, Matt, um, since I've just given a little bit of statistics around there, would be for you to maybe just ex sort of explain the differences between the different types of SLE. No, sorry, what are the types of symptoms that we are possibly going to be seeing? Well, th thanks for the question, Catherine. Um, I'll probably take a step back and say that um, I'd, I'd like to start off with lupus uh, as opposed to a specific type of, uh, of, of lupus, such as SLE and the other two that you mentioned. And you're absolutely right. Um, lupus generically is a, a non-specific inflammatory condition affecting uh, tissue, connective tissue in the body. Uh, and it's, it's, it sounds absolutely horrible, but there are other conditions, big medical conditions, well-known medical conditions, which have the same 
uh, start, if you like, and it's a condition whereby the body becomes allergic to its own tissue, which sounds absolutely horrible. Um, that does sound quite intense, but, but yeah, it I, does sound it's intense, a good explanation it? of it. I, I liked, absolutely, I, I, <laughs> I liked in inverted commas that, that explanation, because um, it does paint a picture, and you can see it with, with other big conditions um, that are very um, out there in the marketplace, um, such as diabetes and also multiple sclerosis as well. So it is, it's, it's uh, the, the fact that the body attacks its own tissue, mm. um, it's, uh, it's quite frightening. Now, as we all know, inflammation occurs when your body's immune system is fighting an infection or an, inju uh, an injury. I would imagine that most, if not everybody, uh, who's listening today has had some form of inflammation, either from playing football on a Sunday morning or um, having a, a, a simple uh, infection. And of course, it's, it's this, this autoimmune picture um, is right up there in, um, with, with COVID as mm. well. Um, so, but today we must, we must uh, go back to lupus. So in terms of systemic lupus erythematosus, um, this is where the body's uh, immune system starts to attack and or can attack uh, any major organ in the, uh, in the body. And it's pretty serious. There's no two ways about that. And the, the areas that was commonly seen in terms of those major organs are the kidneys mm. uh, in particular. Um, also, it's, it's known to attack the brain, so cere the cerebral area of the body, um, and also the, the heart as well. So you've got some pretty big and rather important areas of the body there that's uh, that, uh, SLE, systemic, um, can, can attack and do damage too. Um, in terms of the, the symptoms, um, it's, it's quite interesting to note that, uh, and I'll go on to uh, DLE, discoid lupus erythematosus, and drug-induced lupus in a minute. The symptoms for, for all three types of lupus initially can be very, very similar. So it's important that the clinician um, takes a detailed uh, history of the symptoms themselves, and also runs um, a series of blood tests. And also, uh, interestingly, um, ask the uh, patient whether there is a history of lupus within the family as well. Now, the symptoms themselves can include extreme fatigue, pain or swelling of the joints, swelling of the hands, feet, or around the eyes. Problems with the skin, uh, the, the very typical butterfly rash from the cheeks, facial cheeks or nose, uh, headaches and low fevers, sensitive sensitivity to sunlight or fluorescent light, and chest pain when breathing deeply. Mm. Now, I'm sure a lot of the listeners again would have would have had some of those symptoms at some stage in their lives, and that's it's one hard, of the, isn't it? Because it's one of the very difficult areas to get that diagnosis. Sorry, Catherine, you were going to say. I was going to say it, it is hard because you know I think it's with so many things isn't it you know yep. you, the symptoms for almost anything and everything seem to, 100%, seem to it's kind of like when you go on sort of like isn't it the NHS website or something you sort of like have you had any of these symptoms <laughs> oh sorry that would be that would be fudgy 
for G. Yes, I do not. I think he just wants to be on the podcast now every time. Like, <laughs> Don't blame uh, me. <laughs> <laughs> um, that was uh, my doorbell going and him being my fierce birdie protector, obviously. Um, um, I was going to say he isn't a protector at all. He would just turn over for a tummy cuddle with anybody at any point. Um, <laughs> but no, you know, as I said, the NHS website, you put in things about your symptoms and almost every single time it'll say, oh, you have to go to A&E. You know, there's um, <laughs> the way that it... That's um, the crazy thing about it, isn't it? It, it is. It, it, it but it really does just is. cross over with so many things coming like the pain and the swelling of the joints and things like yep. that. You know, I think a lot of people have probably had pain in the joints and things like that. So obviously... obviously the, the fatigue, um, yes. headaches... Um, you know, it's 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 um, it's it's a difficult one, and there's no, there's no two ways about it. That that um, as I've alluded to, the the clinician has to do a very thorough job mm. in terms of analysing those symptoms and looking at the family history, and also uh, arranging um, a series of blood tests. And the blood tests are often the, um, the the definitive way, if I can call that, call it that, definitive. Uh, way of, of making a diagnosis at the end of the day but it's pretty difficult to do um, at an early stage with lupus um, hence why you'll find for life cover um, the underwriting fraternity will often um, postpone a case for say 12 months until a firm diagnosis has been made and the progression or otherwise of the disease can be calculated is it, I could be wrong, but I feel like I read somewhere that with lupus, it can be quite standard for it to maybe even take five years to actually get an official diagnosis, even once you're, you know, you're really engaging and there's even the suspicion of di- um, lupus. Maybe that's a certain type. I could be wrong. Um, I, I think in some circumstances, you, you, that, that the five-year um, term could be right. Um, I think it very much depends maybe at what stage within the disease that the patient actually seeks medical help I suppose, or, or they get investigated properly. I was going to say, because um, I imagine private medical insurance as well, obviously that's going to probably bring that down. Because Again, it's one of these things with me. I always think with... Um, blood tests in some ways I sort of think right when they take blood they should be able to test everything I'm sort of like if you're taking the blood just test everything and anything but I imagine it's that they have to do very specific tests to sort of like see if it's lupus it's not just suddenly gonna it's not gonna pop up on a a regular blood um uh screen I imagine it's not going to throw out a um an instant diagnosis for you know it's going to be a combination of factors really yeah antibody tests um, you know, for the for the overproduction um, are very useful in making a diagnosis. But at the end of the day, it's it's a little bit of a wait and see in the context of getting a firm diagnosis. But but that doesn't necessarily mean that treatment, some form of treatment, um, can be given uh, early doors. So yeah, it's 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 not an easy one, but. Um, it, it has to be said that the, the clinicians of this world are are generally um, making the, the right decisions because the yes. actual mortality involved with the worst of these three, and I'll come on to the other two in a minute, but systemic, i.e. system involvement, um, the, the mortality um, associated with it has come down dramatically in the last 20 years. Um, so, and, and that's primarily because of, of, of diagnosis and the diagnosis leading to a full, a course of, of treatment. Mm. And obviously they can um, vary the treatment, which is often steroids. 
um, or anti-malarials for that matter, um, accordingly. And as we'll come on to a little bit later on, obviously steroids can lead to problems in their own right and therefore have to be very uh, carefully managed by any clinician uh, treating somebody with SLE. Yep. Well, I think, as I say, from the, the from an underwriting perspective, um, uh, the listeners, please don't be surprised if somebody appearing with um, a variety of symptoms with a question mark SLE are not postponed until a firmer diagnosis has been made. Yes. It has to be an absolute diagnosis, but a firmer diagnosis than a variety of symptoms. And also it'll take time probably for the uh, clinician to get the dosage of the steroids or antimalarials right yeah. for that, that person's particular condition, because everybody who suffers from SLE is different. And I think that's pretty important to say. Okay. Um, I did promise to, 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 uh, mention the other two types of lupus which you mentioned yep. um, and as I've already said with with um, uh, discoid lupus erythematosus and what a mouthful that uh, that is um, it is actually a separate entity um, to to SLE it was classified clinically as a separate entity um, but unlike systemic if if, if um, just, just again I, I always say remember systemic because it can impact the body's systems. Okay, that, that's why the word is used, really. Um, but with discoid, um, it remains confined to the skin and only the skin. It doesn't impact the other major organs, um, f- generally for life. But in the great majority of patients, there is the one or two percent that might end up with SLE. Um, but the majority. Um, should not have any major problems from a uh, from a mortality perspective, and therefore, once the underwriter um, and let's let's face it, the clinician at the end of the day uh, are happy that we are looking at uh, DLE yeah. um, and solely DLE. Then again, once that diagnosis can be firmed up, then you can often get standard rates from a mortality perspective. Okay. Uh, for discoid for drug-induced lupus um, again the symptoms often overlap overlap with um, SLE Um, and again it's very rare that the major organs are affected at all Um, and when people are on treatment on on, uh, medicines it can take several months or even years before any of the typical symptoms of lupus actually appear Um, but uh, on a little bit with a little bit of research uh, Two drugs do seem to be um, particularly implicated, if I can call it that, with drug-induced lupus, mm. and that's hydrolyzine, um, where 5% of patients develop um, lupus symptoms, and that's often used for uh, hypertension, for treating high blood pressure, yeah. and also procanamide, which is in fact um, used for, it's a heart drug, used for a, a regular heart rhythm, and 20% of people uh, on that drug can get symptoms um, other drugs, uh, far less than one percent, often more than uh, more often less than 0.1 percent. So, those are the two types of drugs. And indeed, sorry, I've just got some. I did find another one. I just noticed uh, a sunazide, which is for tuberculosis, um, is is a little bit higher than one percent. But here. Um, once those drugs have been stopped or managed, and I think it's important to say you don't have to come off them particularly, mm. once they're managed, uh, symptoms will disappear after six months. And 
bear in mind that these the, the, the drug-induced lupus, the, the clinicians know that the drugs which can cause these types of lupus symptoms, then it'll be managed very, very well. And uh, effectively, from a life insurance perspective, um, once those symptoms are have disappeared, struck or stable, then there is there should be no problems in, in getting normal terms for life insurance. Does that help in terms of differentiating the three? Yeah, I think it really does. I mean, I think, you know, when we're talking about uh, lupus and especially as an advisor who's wanting to help somebody if we're hearing like SLE, then we need to be probably more aware that that's going to be potentially make some things a bit trickier we maybe need to know obviously we always need to know as much as possible but we, we need to know some extra things as well compared to to potentially the others um, so I know we said before about potentially involvement with kidneys and other organs so I know with the kidneys um, we're probably going to look, looking at what's known as the GFR readings so that is yeah. golf foxtrot romeo readings um, it's quite easy if you sort of like do a search online to find in a sense what they should ideally be within and if someone can tell you the, the number that they have for that um then that'd be very useful um would they be wanting uh because obviously i know you said the heart and the brain i'm not exactly sure what would you could use in a sense as evidence or what you would ask somebody about that but i know obviously typically when i'm looking at things i would be starting thinking about kidneys all right i need to know the gfr i would potentially talking the liver as well so would we maybe want to know what the the lfts were as well um, I haven't seen liver specifically mentioned as a, one of the, uh, if I can use the term, common uh, yeah. major organs that are used. But with 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 um, the kidneys, and we're, look, we're looking at inflammation here, and obviously inflammation when it goes completely haywire, as we've seen sadly with COVID, um, it can stop that organ actually functioning full stop. So you're absolutely right with GFR, glomerular filtration rate, yeah. um, but you're also looking at um, other renal kidney function tests, so, such as um, creatinine as well, yeah. creatinine clearance. Now, um, in terms of the heart and the, uh, the brain, then um, you, you're certainly going to be looking at the bloods that relate to the heart, as we as we know so well from um, the diagnosis of heart attack, uh, etc. With bloods, uh, troponins, an, an, uh, an enzyme which you'll know a lot about or have heard a lot about, um, but. The brain is, is an interesting one. I must admit, I don't think I've ever seen an SLE case um, where there's actually been brain involvement, apart from um, at, uh, during, with, with my claims experience at post-mortem. So I'm not ultimately sure whether the blood tests, what blood tests would be needed for that, apart from a scan will probably tell you that it, the, the, the tissue in the brain is very inflamed. Okay. So, but when, I have to say, once you get to, to kidney uh, and cerebral heart involvement, then I'm afraid there's a minimal chance of getting life insurance with those three. The, the, those, once it gets to the major organs, um, the, the prognosis is pretty poor when it comes to, to, to the actuarial underwriting calculations that, are, that, that uh, make up the, kind of the rating boundaries, the risk boundaries, which um, are applicable in the industry. So I think, yeah, I, I see where you come from with that. I think it's probably good to clarify that it's um, the difficulty would be for life insurance with mainstream insurers. So there could be some options with some specialist insurers, but obviously, as with anything like that, if somebody was going to be looking at that, it is 
an incredible need to be very, very clear about um, potentially pricings, potentially exclusions, and um, what that can and can't involve. And obviously, sometimes there are some product types that we can maybe look at that would maybe be slightly away from your what you would imagine like your, your personal life insurance space. And we can maybe look at some other options um, that somebody could be covered by. You never know. And um, but I think if we talk about um, I know you were saying about the medications. So I think that's another thing where advisors, we, we generally um, start to like we have it in our company where we start like go, right, if it ends in this or it sounds like this, then it's probably going to be <laughs> one of these. And you know, there are certain yeah. ones that, you know, sort of like, right, OK, then that means that that's actually we've gone to a new level of um, maybe sort of like severity of symptoms. And needing to have the control but I suppose like you said you know there's a thing in terms of some potentially long-term steroid use and and I know we all know sort of like that thing of and I think it's we're told oh you don't want to be on steroids for long or you don't want to be doing this but I suppose I've never really sort of like asked the question so, so what is the problem with long-term steroid use? Well it, it, it... <laughs> it's not an easy one to answer sorry. <laughs> No, no, it's, it's all right. I mean, essentially, um, steroids, although they are counter-inflammatory, in other words, reduce the inflammation, um, they can impact um, the organs in their, in their own right by um, impairing the function um, of them and therefore getting the actual balance between, um, say, say the, the one that often crops up, I think, in medical records or, or at, when we're talking to clients is um, prednisolone then um, we have to be careful that the damage caused by um, the prednisolone, well, so I, I say we do as an underwriter, that's, that's unfair. The clinicians have to be very, very careful that the prednisolone dosage doesn't cause more damage um, to the patient, uh, as, as in fact would be the original condition. And, and that's the difficulty of it. Now, in terms of... Um, safe levels, and again, I will use that term loosely, of uh, prednisolone, the market still tends to look at um, 15, mili- 15 1.5 milligrams per day. And uh, clinicians would, vary, would always look for an alternative to the, the long-term use of prednisolone um, and look at other ways of, of treating a given condition. So 15 milligrams tends to be the, the kind of cutoff point where insurers start to, it's a, a red flag or maybe an orange flag, if I can use that term. Mm. But remember, we are talking long-term use. Um, often um, uh, the use of prednisolone can be a lot higher, but for very short, short periods. As soon as the prednisolone starts kicking in and reducing the inflammation, then um, the, the, the figure can be reduced. And reduce. So an underwriter, just because somebody has had, let's say, 45 milligrams for a month, I'm not going to rate them. And they are currently not on 45 milligrams, I might add. They're not yeah. going to rate, just rate them out of hand. It would be the, the, the long-term position that they would look at here. Um, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a difficult one, but I think short-term bursts of very high dosage of steroids um, is, off, is obviously needed. Yeah. Um, again, we've heard, we've heard of that use of um, various anti-inflammatory drugs with, with, with COVID, um, and an underwriter would only look at the, long, the, 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 the longer-term position. I think 
you hit the, the word on the head, long-term use. Yeah. I think the other point here is that some conditions will always require steroids and yeah. therefore the base rating, so the number of deaths that the actuaries and the underwriters would see in their statistical analysis, some of those may have died because of um, the absolutely essential need of high dosages of, pro, of, of prednisolone. So therefore, the high dosages of prednisolone could all already be taken into account in terms of the base loading. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I think that makes a lot oh, of good. sense. Sorry, Catherine. Um, all right. Um, so again, the 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 um, partnership between the actuaries and the underwriters is absolutely key to understand whether it's the prednisolone that at the end of the day caused the major problem or whether it was the underlying disease. And where you've got both added together, there is absolutely no point in adding another rating for continuing uh, for, for prednisolone use. Okay. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I hope that makes hope, hope that makes sense. It's a, it's a bit of a it's um, one of those more difficult areas within the uh, the underwriting piece, I think, to at least try and explain. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I'm, I'm glad that you were the one explaining it, not me. <laughs> <laughs> Um, (laughs) there's also obviously if we talk about the um, hereditary side of things potentially there is potentially this thing isn't there where somebody could be a carrier of the lupus gene and it's one of those things where and it it can happen with other conditions as well where it can be quite interesting because obviously insurers are not allowed to ask about genetic conditions um in so obviously if it's a predictive test then they're not allowed to ask about that. If it, obviously if it was a diagnostic test, and that's different in terms of these kinds of tests that are done. So if somebody's had a predictive test, and obviously it says that they are or aren't a carrier for, for lupus or potentially you know, could develop it at some stage, then, then that would be a case of they're not allowed to, to bring that up in the question set. However, if somebody does have hereditary um, so like links to lupus, especially just in the very immediate um, blood relatives. So that's just parents and siblings. Um, it could well show up in the family medical history because you know some insurers will ask a certain set of questions about health conditions, and some of them will then say any hereditary condition. At which point, you know, it can pop up there. And I think what can be interesting is that um, for some people, is that you know we don't ever want to say to somebody. You know, if they've, if they've chosen not to have a predictive test at all, then obviously, you know, we wouldn't want to necessarily push anybody towards that at all. Because um, there'd be very clear reasons as to why they didn't want to. But it's interesting because if somebody has had a predictive test and then it's shown that they are um, sort of like negative for the condition, that can potentially open up opportunities, I believe. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, 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 the negative genetic test result um, can be a very, very useful tool um and uh, in my opinion um should always be um discussed um when when um, advisors talk to their clients and um, and be used accordingly um interestingly and i think this is where the industry falls down a little bit um sometimes you're going to get underwriters asking well why what's going on and and I suppose you could argue that it's obvious why they've had the test because there is a concern but remember they actually have to get a a clinician to agree to doing that test in the first place and if there wasn't a reason from a clinical perspective unless they get it done privately then it won't be done Um, 
but um, with a clear explanation, which really has to come from the client um, to the whys and wherefores of a particular scenario, then uh, I would hope that the, the, all underwriters, the vast majority of underwriters, would, would take it um, as a positive. It's, if it's, as you quite rightly have highlighted, if, um, if, it's, a, if it's a positive test, yes. um, then there is no need to disclose. Of course. Um, but it, it, this is one of the areas, um, rather like mental mental illness, to be perfectly honest, where the information that be, that can be obtained right at the, the conversation with the client, and that, as you, as you know so well, Catherine, that is one heck of a skill mm. to discuss some of these um, some of these areas. That the more information that can be obtained from the client, the better, and the better outcome should be for the client when they go to the insurers but it, it's um you know it is a particular skill I, I know cura financial services are very much into developing those skills within its advisors absolutely um, more information the better it's surprising as well it's for for different um conditions so um we we had a we can sometimes end up in a very awkward position as an advisor as well, because we were supporting somebody um, a while ago and they had the sickle cell trait. So they yeah. came into us, obviously didn't have sickle cell. They had the traits so of the genetic, in a sense, carrier of the condition. And we went through everything and we got the terms back and they weren't what we were expected. And so we were sort of saying, OK, then. And so we got the copy of the medical records and everything and had a very, very difficult conversation because the person actually did have sickle cell and right. they mm -hmm. felt that they believed that they just had sickle cell trait. And right. that's right. a really, really tricky conversation. Obviously, it's, it's one of those things as an advisor, you kind of sat there thinking, and it's hard because it's like, well, what do I do? Because, you know, this person's not had anything, they've not had this explained to them. No, no, to to the level that they should have maybe had this explained to them. Um, but ultimately, you can't, you can't not tell. It's it's, well, it's, it's very hard because you're like, well, I have to tell them, but also I'm not a medical professional and yeah. things like that. Obviously, in this situation, we, we did. And again, it's a very, very specific conversation where you chat to somebody to be able to, to discuss that and maybe gently suggest that they maybe speak to their medical um, person just to clarify exactly their health. And and luckily, obviously, once I mean, once we knew that was the case, we just and then switched insurers and switched approach and it was fine. Um, but I think it's important for people to be aware of that as well as, you know, somebody might tell you something and it, you know, it could be that there could be a number of things. They might not um, realize exactly what the uh, condition is. They might um, be confused um, or they might have been sometimes, they might have compartmentalized it and they might have just sort of like put it right to the back of the mind and tried to not think about it too much and uh, have made it kind of a, a lesser thing and uh, that can be something that um i always say you know as i said with all of these sorry sessions is if you get something back you weren't expecting terms wise get the medical report double check it and also as well there are plenty of times the medical reports are wrong and um, i've had some very big ones that have been wrong recently uh, with things that you just wouldn't expect at all to have been um, done incorrectly um but they are sometimes that way and it could just be that it's not that the person can't be covered or that you can't cover them it could just be that something just needs correcting somewhere or explaining a bit better to someone um, I can't, I sorry, can't disagree with any of that I think it's extremely well said um, I know well 
having been in the industry for such a long time now, I know that a lot of IFAs feel very, very, very uncomfortable with those types of conversations. Yeah. Um, but the reality is they are so, so important to have. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's great that you and the team are prepared to do it. You, you, rare breed, I would say. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I do like to think of myself as quite rare. Like you said, quite, a, quite, quite special, quite quirky. Um, so I, so <laughs> before we go on to the um, case studies, I think probably the last area for us to go on is I know we originally said about um, critical illness cover and we're preparing for this. I imagine it probably flows over to income protection as well, I have to say. Um, but I think a lot of people can get quite confused as well from an advice point of view, because like when we're talking about lupus, you know, and I think what we've just talked about here will be um, very, very helpful because when we're looking at DLE or DILE, we're not necessarily talking about things going on on the insides. Whereas with SLE, we are thinking that there's probably going to be at some stage some kind of a, an organ involvement. And what we do tend to find is that um, so with the discoid lupus and the drug induced lupus, you can potentially get critical illness cover for them with mainstream providers, obviously very much depending upon many things such as um, the actual symptoms, the treatment schedule, the time since diagnosis, lots of other things. Um, but with SLE, so the systemic uh, lupus, um, that would be, I always say specialist insurers, and I just want to be clarify what I mean by specialist insurers. So that is what we, what I would term as people who aren't mainstream insurers. That's when I'm having to go much more outside of the, the usual names that people would think of when they think of an insurance company or potentially, like I mentioned before, potentially a different product type. Um, and um, I suppose what's good to, to maybe know, and I don't know if there is even an answer to this potentially, Matt, is um, just like with SLE, we've, we have already said, obviously, that there is obviously organ involvement. So I can understand why there'd be... Catherine, can I just maybe just, just, just clarify... Um, there is an, an involvement. SLE doesn't necessarily mean that there is. Okay. Systemic lupus means that it can spread yes. to the to the to the organs, and those would be the worst case scenarios. Yeah. Once uh, people with SLE that don't have organ involvement can still get life insurance cover. Yes. So, oh no, absolutely. Sorry, I was. Sorry, I, was I, meaning... I just wanted to make sure that. Uh, yeah. No, I've, I've moved on to critical illness. <laughs> sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. I do apologise. Shut me up and put me in a box. Go on. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. The thing is, I suppose that that's a really good point, though, because obviously I'm sort of like thinking organ involvement, right? Okay, so I can understand why there's a caution about having heart attack cover for a critical illness policy, potentially even a stroke. But I, I don't know if there's necessarily an increased risk of cancer. And yeah, it comes think, back to that argument of, you know, should we be offering an option that maybe is a cancer policy? Because that is what a lot of people are scared of. Yeah. But then from what you've just said then as well, though, not all SLE is necessarily organ involvement. No. Um, so for it to be kind of almost a bit of a blanket, no, is, is quite hard at the same point as well for that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think with the when i say so systemic lupus erythematosus it can develop um you're going to get inflammation to, to use your words uh, in areas of the body now if you compare that with somebody who has not got sle or any other of the, of the, of the major crazy critical illness payout covers then the chances of that person with sle getting uh um, major organ involvement at some stage are far far higher 
than somebody else. And it, you know, we, we talked about, um, or you, you, you mentioned cancer and people with SLE. Um, the statistics show, and I can't give you an absolute technical explanation uh, at this moment in time, but they do show higher rates of cancer. Right. Okay. So if you, if you take the higher rate, then um, like all of the medical conditions that we've talked about, the again, the underwriters and the actuaries need to get together and say, well, okay, is that um, does that higher rate translate into whether cover can be given or not? Yeah. Is it outside the acceptable uh, limits that um, insurers want to cover? And um, with SLE, certainly, then at the moment, then it, the, the 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 risk outweighs the appetite that insurers are, are, are happy to take on board. Now, logically thinking about it, if somebody has been diagnosed with SLE and they've had absolutely no progression for, I'm picking a number slightly up off my head here, yep. let's say 10 years, 15 years, then with no organ involvement, then maybe something can be done for them. But in, a, in, in the, er, the early stages, when I'm talking about early, I'm talking a, a very good number of years, then without the knowledge of progression or not, yeah. because something can progress, um, a doctor, a, a clinician cannot absolutely say it will or it won't. Yes, of course. Um, then, then that risk appetite is just too high. Yeah. I think, I mean, critical illness income protection, we haven't really touched on both of those areas, I don't think, during our, our, our year of podcasts. And um, yeah. I was, uh, unfortunately, I was away on holiday again before everybody <laughs> said, um, during the um, income protection task force week. Yes. I know Andrew, um, did, Andrew Wibley, that is, did a. Yeah. Did a, um, a a podcast or a, a session on underwriting income protection on I've yet to see it but it's it's a, it's a very interesting area whereby you would hope that the insurance market will, will move forward in the future quite how um, I don't honestly know and um, I'm wondering if Andrew's come up with some uh, some answers on that well but, we absolutely we love income protection so I mean a big oh, thing for us is we you know, <laughs> yeah absolutely I mean we are sort of like of the opinion like for pretty much if you're earning money then income protection should be very very high up on that priority list but one of the reasons that we love it as well is because it can be so much more flexible than critical illness cover whereas you can yeah, find yeah. with critical illness cover it's you know you can either guess it's kind of a a, a yes or a no there's yeah, some yeah, that you might be able to get some exclusions but it is much more it, I always feel like critical is a bit more black and white in the sense of it's you're getting yeah. it or you're not there's not really any movement whereas with income protection um there is quite a lot of the time so much movement and if you sometimes put in a slightly longer deferred period there's so many different things that can maybe just make it okay. So if somebody is trying to look at options, um, I do think that probably someone that's obviously living with SLE will find it difficult to get income protection with a mainstream insurer. And for people with other forms of lupus, um, if, if you're going to have income protection, it's, it's obviously it's quite likely that there'd be an exclusion um, on the claim set for anything related to, to their version of the, the lupus. And again, it's one of those strange things where sometimes you might get an exclusion that says... Um, sort of like exclusion for lupus, but then you'd maybe get another person might turn and say, well, exclusion for all autoimmune conditions, you know, and you'd have to be very, very careful as to where you're looking to make sure you get that right. Um, another um, very, very, um, I was going to say 
not underrated, but I think something that's just not necessarily promoted anywhere near as much as it should be is obviously the options that can come with group um, income protection. So, you know, especially group yeah. income protection, if you've got somebody and they're in a company and, um, you know, they're, they're obviously, the company's going to get cover for all of its employees, um, then they're going to be covered and there'll be a certain amount where there won't be any exclusion relating to the SLE. Um, so it's and I think that's pretty much we can say to listeners you know going back to almost I I think probably every condition that we've covered you know if you have somebody in that situation and there's the option for group insurance or you know group life insurance group income protection that is a huge huge um, thing to have in your power bank as an advisor to be able to offer that Um, there are definitely some technicalities so I always say to people please don't just rush in straight into group cover there are certain things that you really really do need to know Um, but it is somewhere where the ability to actually access to insurance has such an incredible potential yeah, I totally utterly agree. There's, there's no two ways about it. And um, just one one thing around income protection that um, I'd like to share is that income protection was the first protection type policy I ever bought at the age of 21. Uh-huh. Uh, it wasn't life insurance and critical illness actually was in this, um, that shows you how old I am, but critical illness <laughs> was, was relative in its infancy in those days. But income protection was the one absolute standout protection policy. Uh, even... 40 years ago. So there you go. Uh, For me. Absolutely. Brilliant. I'm, I'm glad that it was uh, there. I was going to say, I have to be, because I'm obviously with my kids, I'm, you know, obviously I've got them pensions set up. My youngest had a pension from about nine months, um, you know, so I've, I'm like doing loads of stuff. And I've even been thinking now, and it could seem so daft, but I'm thinking, right, as soon as they're able to get life insurance, yeah. I might just get it for them before anything happens to them, health-wise absolutely. or anything like that, just get it for them, get a nice amount and just, I'll just pay it and just make sure that they've got, life insurance in place that they can eventually take over and have when they're working and then as soon as they're working I'll pay for them to probably have the income protection just so that I know that they'll be all right and um and I imagine there's some people going no let them do it themselves I'm thinking yeah I really want them to but at the same point you know young kids and I say young kids oh my god I'm at that age where I'm 36 and I'm young kids I'm thinking of 21 year olds as young kids that's just soul destroying (laughs) I mean it's it's, no absolutely I mean it's it's an interesting um example because I um had a um uh, a client I suppose you'd call it not in a not in a a broken sense by the way Mm. um where her dad actually bought her critical illness when she was 18 right um but subsequently had a, a cardiovascular, sorry, a cerebrovascular problem when she was only in her late 20s, um, right. which wasn't covered by critical illness, but actually made it impossible for her to get critical illness ever again. And that policy that was taken out at 18 was, was um, uh, expiring at the age of 30. Right. So what you said... Like, you know, it, it does make a lot of sense. Get the yeah. cover in when they're young, if you're Absolutely. a parent or otherwise. Absolutely. I mean, I do think that I've, I've, I just constantly think, I know I don't constantly think, but when I do think about it, I think for my kids, I'm thinking, I'll bless them when it gets to the family medical history. And they're going to have to put me in there. I'm thinking, <laughs> I'm thinking, oh, has your mum been diagnosed with anything before the age of 65? And it's just me a case of like, how much paper do you have? You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, love, I love the question, anything. Absolutely. Absolutely I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, of course, bearing the, um, 
I don't know what you call it absolutely, but um, my unfortunately my daughter um, will will bear the brunt of me having been diagnosed with colon cancer. Yeah. And her critical illness will be rated automatically plus fifty. Yeah. So um, you know it's uh, it's an it's an interesting debate when people should uh, first start getting protection. <coughs> excuse me, protection cover. But um, certainly, you know, there are there are a couple of examples there. Absolutely, yeah. and a very, very good very, example. Very early would have been very useful. Absolutely, but I was going to say a very very good example as to uh, making a getting a conversation in with your daughter's employers about some really critical good. illness yes. cover. Yeah. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. No, I good agree. option there. Okay, so I've got a case study for us to wrap up with. So, um, so we had spoken to somebody um, obviously a little while ago now, and they had been diagnosed with a discoid lupus in their early 20s. And then a few years later, it was actually a further diagnosis of the systemic lupus. Um, they had things like they experienced pain. They had to take some time off work at one stage. But it was the time off work had been very, very much in the past. The diagnosis had been, um, you know, the, this was, we're talking a good 15 years or so since the initial diagnoses and this time off work. They did need to take painkillers when needed and also had the hydroxychloroquine and um, mepoquine, I think it is, um, that they took that sort of like on an as and when basis. So we're talking some of the higher medications there. And then as well as having the um, SLE, they also had developed as a kind of secondary condition to the lupus, they developed antiphospholid syndrome. And some people may know that a bit more as um, the acronym APS. And what they needed to do with that was um, they were having to have warfarin um, quite regularly um, because they had previously experienced uh, deep vein thrombosis or DVT. Uh, they, they had a young family, a very young child, and they wanted to obviously make sure that there was going to be financial security in place. And, and obviously, as with most people expect, they came to us because of the fact that we are specialists in this area for people with health conditions. And um, what was brilliant um, was being able to arrange them the insurance. So based upon obviously a number of factors, we came up with the option for £136,000 worth of level life insurance over 27 years. And the premium came at, out at around £28 per month. So I do like to use that as, a, as obviously as a really good example because we have straight away people would maybe be looking at this situation and thinking of oh, systemic lupus. Well, that's the, that's the stronger one. And then we also then have a progression to another condition. We've got the higher medications. And, you know, we're talking, obviously, we're not talking standard terms. We are talking uh, ratings on the premiums. But I always think it's really interesting to sort of like highlight this is that, you know, obviously a rating on a premium becomes £28 per month. And whilst obviously... I know that's not that doesn't look great if you look at the original amount of life insurance, the premium. It does, however, show that just because you might get a high rating with life insurance, it doesn't mean that it's going to be going into silly money. It's still within the realms of what a lot of people um, would find comfortable as a payment each month. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's It's a great example, Catherine. Great example again. Brilliant. Oh, I'm glad that I'm glad we've been able to have a chat and have gone go on a few little tangents. But no, no, it's um, it's me. I think I've took us off a few places today, but I've enjoyed it. It's been good to have a good natter. Well, and obviously, it's, it's great to hear Fuzz joining in as well. Oh, well, I know. He's, he, um, he obviously wants to get involved. I think we have to have a word with him. Oh, absolutely. He must be a trainee underwriter. He does. Well, I don't know if um, anybody will have noticed, but he is up on our website now. Um, oh, yes, uh, yeah. Lindsay was uh, quite um, 
quite adamant the other day that we would have Fudge on as the third director and chief cuteness operative for Cura. <laughs> and he's got his own little bio and everything. So, um, so yes, he's absolutely a, sort of like a Cura dog. Everybody absolutely adores him. And, um, and he does, he was in, he came and we did some job interviews the other day, uh, last week even. And um, he was there and we were just kind of like, hey, just ignore the dog, it's fine. And um, I think they just enjoyed it because it was kind of like they were having a job interview and also getting to pet a dog, um, yeah. which uh, a lot of people uh, seem to enjoy. But uh, <laughs> The, who had who had the last word, Catherine? That's what I like to say. Was it, was it one word for yes, one one word for uh, two words for no, or something? Oh, absolutely! Yeah, no, no, I, I threw your leg. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, of course. He, I was going to say he definitely has the last word, which is a really big achievement when uh, somebody's chatting to me. So, uh, so good on him. <laughs> Excellent. But thank you so much for coming in, obviously, and sharing our insights again as to all of these um, different things. Um, we are going to be back next time and I'll have Roy McLaughlin back with me and we're going to have Jeff Woods as well from Legal in General. And we're going to be talking about some of the things from their State of the Nation report. And it's going to be talking a lot about protection, especially in the SME space. And um, I've seen it. I've been going through through it and it's um it's really interesting some statistics so i'm hoping that everyone's going to to tune in for that um if you, anybody would like a reminder of the next episode as always just drop us a message on social media or visit the website practical-protection.co.uk and also don't forget if you are listening to this as part of your work you can claim a cpd certificate on the website too and that is thanks to our sponsors octo members so again thank you very very much matt my pleasure as always Catherine. lovely to speak to you and fudge <laughs> lovely to speak to you too <laughs> bye bye